Bibles, take your Bibles and join with me in going to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And as you do, allow me to relate a story of when I was an impressionable 18-year-old, a freshman in Bible college, having sensed a real call to church ministry and with a handful of years of musical training under my belt, I was feeling fairly confident that music ministry was in my future. Our school every year hosted a large conference, an opportunity for prospective students to visit the campus, for alumni to reconnect, for general encouragement and equipping of the churches. And for that conference, I was given the privilege of leading the worship music for the main session. And at that time of my life, I was feeling pretty good about my guitar skills. I was feeling pretty good about my singing as well. I was feeling pretty good about being asked before the upperclassmen to lead the band. I was feeling pretty good about being in front of hundreds of people. And I was pretty good about hiding uh, my pleasure with myself. A well-known teacher and pastor was flown in to speak at this event, which was no small deal. I had heard him teach before, and I was quite taken with him. I respected him. I looked up to him. I even had the opportunity that night to meet him after the event. And as I am being introduced to him, I extended the customary, I'm so excited to meet you. It's such a pleasure. Great message tonight. And he humbly thanked me and replied, much to my surprise, he said, you did quite well yourself leading worship there. You're quite skilled and you're only a freshman. Is that what I heard? And my head grew three sizes that day. But then this man grabbed me by the back of the neck and pulled me in real close. He tapped me on the chest and he looked me square in the eye and he whispered to me, everyone around, he said, if I ever find out that you use these gifts that God has given you to steal away his glory, he said, wherever you are, I will find you. (laughs) And with all the strength that is in me, I will punch you in the face. (laughs) And then he walked away. (laughs) I think he was only half serious. I hope so. I think maybe he saw something in me. And I never forgot those words to this very day. God knew what I needed to hear. Sorry. I still see the fruit of that seed in my life. And maybe that's why I'm up here this morning preaching this text to you. You see, the impacts of a teacher's words cannot be overestimated. There is a high calling placed on anyone who teaches, especially in the church. When we think about, when we think about the weight of responsibility given to teachers in the church. Shouldn't our minds go first to the great teacher, Jesus Christ? As Peter described him, the one who has the very words of life. And our great teacher entrusted this word to his apostles, saying to them, go and make disciples of all the nations, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It was the Apostle Paul then that issued that call to Timothy. He said, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, that is the transference. The very word of God made flesh in the person of Christ. Making disciples who make disciples who go on to make more disciples. Everyone who believes this word, who is transformed by this word, is entrusted with this word. The power of the gospel is not divvied up only to some elite class of scholars, but given to the uneducated, to common people. The gospel is not allotted only to the erudite and sophisticated scholar, the orator, but prepared for the mouths of babes. Jesus himself loved this truth. When he prayed to the Father, he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The words of life by God's gracious will are for you and entrusted to you. In the days of the early church, this was an earth-shattering truth. It was a countercultural message. It broke down ancient divisions of class, nationality, race, sex. No longer was God's presence be limited to a particular nation or to a class of priests who alone were given special access to revelation and true intimate worship. No, now all believers were part of a holy priesthood. Both Jew and Gentile were in the family of God. Those that the world standard relegated to lower status, God chose. Even the weak, even those considered by the world as foolish, the low, the despised. That's a revolutionary truth. And you know, it invigorated the early church. There was this new liberty. But often, liberty leads to license. And in the case of these first believers, this incredible unifying freedom was a perfect breeding ground, ironically, for division. You see, in the ancient Greek world, teachers, philosophers, professors, orators were highly regarded and respected. These offices were elite, to be sure, in a Gentile context. But even in a Jewish context, we find A similar scenario. One need only look to the Gospels and note the high regard given by the people to teachers of the Jewish law, to scribes, to Pharisees. Among the early believers, there was a clamoring after these sorts of positions. There was a new draw to the office of teacher. And it's into this context that the authors of the New Testament will spill much ink in combating the inherent dangers of this newfound freedom. It is an honorable position indeed for which we should esteem and aspire to, but it is one of great responsibility. And one author, among the others, highlights this for us. It is James. James, the brother of Jesus. James, pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James, mentioned by Paul as one of the pillars of the church alongside Peter and John. And right in the middle of this letter of his, he addresses this peculiar point about those who desire to become 
teachers. Many of the other New Testament books will address this, but they will address the subject of false teaching and general qualifications and the calling to the office of teacher or the nuances of doctrine and how to discern the truth, what is called Christian teaching. But James, in a way only James can, moves to the foundation. He peels back the veneer to find what's underneath. So let's look together at James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the horses, into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask that you give us ears to hear your word to us this morning. Instruct us in every way that leads to your glory and our sanctification. Soften the hearts of the proud and strengthen the hearts of the weary. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this passage serves almost as a test, as an entrance exam for those who want to become teachers, to those who have this desire. It's clear now, having read the passage, that there's one issue at play in James's admonishment regarding the office of teacher, and it's very specific. In effect, James is asking, so you want to become or you consider yourself already a teacher, have you rightly considered your tongue? Now, this isn't the first time he has mentioned the importance of speech, our words, our tongue, in the life of the believer. In James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then just a few verses later, in verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. See, these two passages serve as previews of what is to come. The believers to which James writes 
are apparently in need of a generous reminder of their importance in bringing their tongue under control. The tongue that is leading to anger. The tongue that is revealing the content of one's heart. The tongue that is determining the legitimacy of one's faith. Pretty strong words from James. And almost made in passing in chapter 1. But now he takes the opportunity to relate this importance of controlling the tongue. Consider first, you would be teachers. You will be judged by God with greater strictness. The Bible makes clear that every man and woman will stand before God and be judged by this single standard of perfect holiness. James is highlighting, though, a particular qualification for teachers. And Jesus told us this. Jesus said, Everyone to whom much was given, of of him much will be required. You see, God will judge teachers more strictly. So be warned, you who presume, there is a great responsibility that comes along with it. Yes, great reward to those who labor well, but repercussions, terrible repercussions to those who do not. And for what will a teacher be most scrutinized? They will be judged first and foremost by what they say. And that's what it means to teach. That's what lends humor to the old adage, those who can't do, teach. (laughs) Now let's be clear, biblically speaking, we, we will all be judged by both word and deed. In fact, the entire book of James kind of makes this clear. We must hear the word and do what it says. Faith without works is dead faith. Knowing the right thing to do but not doing it is sin. We are responsible not simply for what we know or what we believe or what we say, but what we do with all of it. That's the book of James. And now James says, we all stumble in many ways. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice he says, we, myself included, says James, we will be judged, we will stumble. I am like you all in this way, even as a teacher. I recognize the weight of what I am telling you. I am not setting myself apart, as if to say that I'm perfectly qualified to instruct you on these things. James says, I know I will be judged more strictly. I will stand before God on the day of judgment and give account for every careless word I speak. For by my words, I will be justified, and by my words, I will be condemned. James is warning the believers to consider the cost, check the motives, examine one very important qualification for which we will be judged most strictly. Do we have control of our tongue? We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So begins the central point of James's admonishment. Do you have control? In effect, what James is saying here is that though we all go on sinning, if you want to get a handle on sin, just start with your mouth. If you can control that, you can do anything. James uses so many analogies in this passage, but the first is this bridle. It's the headgear of the horse connected to the reins. It is an instrument of control. If anyone can control their speech, well, then they've proven themselves in control of the body. 
Now, essential to the bridle is this bit, which goes into the mouth. And it's this piece that James wants us to look at more intently. It's because it's such a fitting analogy of our situation. You know, there's one place, one place on the horse, just one, that if you can control it, the rest comes just right along. To which James can say, if you can control your mouth, you'd be perfect. Now, that's a lot of power. And that's James's first point. There are four realities he shares with us about the tongue. And the first is that the tongue is powerful. You control the mouth of the horse. You control the horse. This incredible creature with strength and power under your control is through this little bitty device in its mouth. But if you need another example, look at a ship says James. A ship pressed upon by mighty winds of the sea and under threat of powerful waves and yet controlled by this little device called the rudder. Now, the rudder happens to be at the back of the ship, but it serves the same function of control. So small in proportion to this massive ship that it controls, and it kind of looks like a tongue. It's attached to the helm, the ship's wheel, and the captain controls that. So control the, mouth, control the bit in the mouth and you turn the horse. Control the rudder and you turn the ship. Power under control. Power from something so small. No wonder, says James, that the tongue boasts. I can do great things. It most certainly can. We so often find boasting unfounded, but not here. The tongue has every reason to boast. It has immense power. But again, when much has been given, much is expected. And what exactly can we expect this boastful tongue that we each have flapping around proudly in our mouths to accomplish? You see, the negative tone of this statement kind of gives it away. The character of the tongue is starting to come out which is the second reality about the powerful, boastful tongue. The tongue is destructive. With that, another vivid image, James shows us that the tongue is able to accomplish something terrible if left uncontrolled. With the hands off the reins, what happens to the horse? With the captain away from the helm, what happens to the ship? The bit is uncontrolled, the rudder is uncontrolled, so they become wild. And look, he says, what a small fire can do to a forest when out of control. And many of you watched as the Waldo Canyon fire lit up the mountains. And then not long after that, the Black Forest fire. Exact cause, still kind of undetermined, but one thing most folks agree on is that they weren't Acts of nature. They were acts of man. So much power, so much power bound in such a small thing, so much potential when left unchecked to destroy. The tongue is like a fire. Mm, No, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a cigarette butt flicked carelessly onto the ground. The tongue is the last coal of a campfire, just left negligently smoldering. 
The tongue is a match in the ignorant hands of a toddler. The tongue is a tiny bullet fired from the malicious hands of a criminal. The tongue is a sparkler waved around just for fun. And where the sparks land, still flickering, who knows? Which begs the question, it should, what about my tongue? Has it been used to start a fire? You see, this isn't poetry James is writing. He's practicing surgery on us. I have a tongue. You have a tongue. So meditate, even if just for a moment, on one thing that you have said, if ever so small, that has burned someone else. A careless word. A comment spoken negligently or ignorantly. Even unintentional as it may seem, the tongue is a destructive force if left out of control for one moment. One word has the power to destroy a forest. And isn't there a forest of souls always around us, withered and weary, dried and sapped of life and hope, vulnerable and primed to be kindled by one spark from my tongue? And if that weren't dangerous enough, how about a word spoken in anger? How about a word spoken to malign? What do you think happens with gossip, false accusation, coarse jesting, rudeness, sarcasm, whose intent is to do harm to another? You know, even a harsh tone can begin in motion a course of events that ends in an inferno just starts with rubbing two sticks together, building up heat until an ember is formed and dropped into the fuel that it intended. The tongue is a fire. And we know these things to be true. The power of the tongue, the destruction that it can cause. Haven't we all stumbled in this way over and over again? And haven't we all been burned just by a word. It is awesome in the worst sense, the most terrifying sense, what the tongue can do if left uncontrolled. But James goes on to elaborate even more on this fire that is the tongue. He says, he says first that it is a world of right, unrighteousness. Some of your translations might say world of evil, world of iniquity, world of sin, world of malice. They're all apt descriptions of what James intends, for what he intends is to double down on the tongue's nature. It is not bent on goodness. It is not benevolent by nature. He says that it is set among our members, holy and unique, excelling above all the others in the body in both its power and its intent to destroy and do evil. The tongue not only has a controlling influence over the body, it affects the whole body, almost like it infects the whole body. James is now turning our attention not only to what our speech does to others, he's highlighting what the moral influence on ourselves is. This veritable world of sin is condensed in our tongue, and it's identified in three ways, he says. It stains the whole body. Thank you, James, for one more, one more analogy. But it holds well. The word stain we hear again in the book of Jude as that which defiles. You see, it doesn't just leave an impression. 
It blemishes, it fouls, it pollutes, it affects everything, just the way you would expect a fire to do. It leaves a burn scar in your soul. James is passing on the wisdom of Jesus here. Jesus who said in Matthew 15 and verse 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now in that context, Jesus was rebuking the teachers, take note, teachers of the law, who were concerned about hand washing and its spiritual implications. Well, Jesus as James does here, is correcting that thinking. The mouth, the tongue, our speech is an inward indication of an outward, an outward indication of an inward reality. As Jesus came to testify, you know, the Lord looks at the heart and what you put into your mouth isn't, isn't the real problem. The real test of spiritual self-control and genuine faith is not the traffic going in, it's the traffic coming out. Our speech stains the rest of our body. Now, You know this to be true. Let me ask you a question. When you speak a harsh word to someone else, does that soothe you or inflame you in your spirit? Does an outburst really make you feel better? Does a gossiping tongue put to rest your curiosity or does it feed it? You see, Hear part of James' point about the power and influence that the tongue has in its position as a member of the body. He says also that it sets on fire the entire course of life, which in the, in the text here is a very strange um, phrase. It means literally the wheel of birth, course of life. Now, when James wrote this letter, it would have been a common understanded phrase there. It has something to do with the rhythm of life from birth to death, maybe the circle of life as a wheel represents. In essence, what's being communicated here is that our tongue sets things on fire as it rolls along. That's the simplest way to put it. These days, we hear folks describe life as a journey or an adventure or the road we walk, and that's fine, whichever floats your boat. But I think if James has one word to say on the matter, he's suggesting actually your tongue is more like a flaming wheel rolling through a field, setting the fire on grass. That's your adventure. So the fire spreads in you and the fire spreads around you because of you. From the moment we learn to speak to our very last word spoken, we have this power to destroy with our mouths. Anyone who's raised children knows this to be true. Right? A child's ability to harm physically is providentially limited by their strength. And it grows as they grow, but not their mouths. They learn to voice their displeasure immediately from the womb. Cries and screams, even without words, communicate the same heart. A heart that only knows the self and its desires. Now those screams eventually turn into words. And the tongue of even the smallest child is unhindered at voicing their displeasure. In their innocence, they don't understand what those words really mean sometimes or what they do. But they spread fire and cause damage all the same. As any parent can testify upon hearing for the first time, I hate you. 
from those little brand new lips, that little tongue. It would be reasonable to assume, I hope, that with age comes wisdom in the use of our tongue. But James says it's the entire course all the way through. As we get older, we get looser in our speech, don't we? Admittedly, we might learn to speak less, which James would commend to us, but we get salty in our old age. That's a kind way to say that. But truly, our, our speech tends to grow less patient, less kind, less discerning, less edifying as we grow old. It should not be that way. Lastly, James describes the tongue, the fire, in a way that tells us where this fire comes from. He says our tongue is set on fire by hell. Now, it is a world of sin, remember, a fire, a boaster with great power and intent on destruction. Now, where else could such a fire, a force, find its source but in the very fires of hell? Now, what we call hell here. It's translated from the word Gehenna, James uses it. He's only one in the New Testament that uses it outside the Gospels, where we hear Jesus use it frequently. It was a reference to a real place, a valley in the south of Jerusalem, a site of terrible sin in Israel's history, where idols were worshipped, where babies were sacrificed in flames. By Jesus' day, it had become a city dump, rightly so where all manner of refuse was deposited, where the bodies of animals and criminals were just thrown into rot and be burned. And as such, this place was always burning. So Jesus uses Gehenna as a perfect picture of the future real place of punishment for the wicked, a terrible, eternal destiny of misery, misery and unquenchable fire a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place prepared for the devil and his angels and all those who follow him. Now that is the place of the fire that sets aflame the tongue in all its evil intent. The tongue also is the devil's choice instrument in our bodies to do his work, isn't it? Because he knows it is so powerful, the tongue. He doesn't look to your hands the way he looks to your tongue. He doesn't look at your ears or your eyes the way he looks at your tongue. He doesn't want to use your stomachs or any other member of your body used for sensual passions. Oh, he wants to start with the tongue. Set it on fire. Create a world of evil. After all, that's his own favorite. His own favorite tool for destruction. Jesus tells us, when he rebukes the Pharisees in John chapter 8, that you are, your, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What James is trying to say is the damage done by the tongue the pain that we feel by it is really a foretaste of hell itself. Hell breaks onto earth through your mouth. But what if, what if we could control it? What if we could control the tongue? 
doesn't fire also have this amazing potential to do good? I mean, we would, I would, I hope to find James giving us a happy ending right here. This is a good place to do it, right? Some good news, some remedies, some application of the good uses of the tongue. But James does not do that. He's not done. This teaching is not done. And that leads to the third reality that makes the tongue so dangerous. The tongue is untamable. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. So to illustrate, James asks us to consider man's dominion over the natural world. Now he draws this example nearly word for word from the covenant that God established with Noah. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. All of creation is under man's dominion, under his control. He's been given that ability by God to bring all manner of creatures under his subjection. All spheres of nature, beasts, birds, creeping things, fish. Now, James is not trying to be exhaustive in the way that our Western minds like to think. The truth of what he's saying, now you can easily grasp as we look at what man has been able to do with the animal kingdom. Have you ever seen a dolphin dance? Sticking, someone sticking their head in the mouth of a lion, <laughs> wrestling with a bear, handling a snake, riding an elephant, and on and on and on it goes. Man has mastery over the creation in this sense. And so James says that every kind of creature can be and has been tamed by man. But humanity has never been able to master that little piece of flesh between their teeth. And to that fact, James leaves no opportunity for misunderstanding. There's no trickery in the Greek. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is an untamable creature, and it is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, which is this subtle allusion to the snake-like quality of the tongue, that creature that needs neither the strength of arms or legs but whose power is bound up in its bite. It restlessly resides in each one of our mouths, coiled, ready for any opening to strike without hesitation and inflict a bite that leads to death. I appreciate how one commenter put it. He said, God hath in the structure of the mouth appointed a double rail to it, teeth and lips, and by grace hath laid many restraints upon it. And yet, he says, the tongue breaketh out. So with that last analogy, James draws us into what is his application here, especially for those clamoring to be considered teachers. The tongue is powerful and destructive and untamable evil. And on top of it all, the fourth reality, the tongue is also unstable, restless, James uses this word a number of other places in his letter. In James chapter 1, verse 8, James describes the man who prays to God for wisdom but doubts that he's going to receive what he prays for. He says that's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then just past our text in chapter 3, verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, same word, 
and every vile practice. And then in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 8, James says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. All these perspectives on the same word. Restless, unstable, disorderly, double-minded. And in each case accompanied by evil, vile practice, and sin. Because these things go well together. Because these things are in opposition to the creator who himself is, in James' own words, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is no shifting with God. He is stable. That is what he represents. That's how he created this world and his creatures and his people to be. Like him, good, true, faithful, righteous He gives this creation to man's control. But sin is a stain and a destroyer. And it sits among our members with its weapon of choice, our tongue. And it is restless. It does not want to be controlled. It wants free reign over our bodies and the lives of others. And so it strikes to kill. It inflames passions in all of its victims Ourselves and those who happen to come just within earshot. The tongue sows chaos. It likes things to be out of control and unpredictable. So you can imagine the surprise of James' hearers. Maybe you were surprised to hear in verse 9 that with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And it would seem up to this point that the tongue is good for nothing and for nothing good. Until we reach this point to find out that the tongue is used to bless God too? Well, that's a window into the problem that James is addressing. Believers, it would seem, are in one moment praising God and at the very next cursing their brother. From the same mouth, both blessing and cursing. Complete instability. And what is James' reaction? These things ought not to be so. These things are not right, my fellow Christians. So he gives us another example from the natural world. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? You can answer. No? Yeah, good. That's what he intends. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, good job. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. But that's what's being observed here by James. Salt water and fresh water coming out of the same fountain. A tree bearing fruit that only grows on a vine and vice versa. He's not simply saying to them, well, that's just weird. No, he's saying it's impossible. But it's happening. So how do we reconcile that? Allow me to take us to 1 John chapter 4. Verse 19. We love God... Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It is not in God's eyes both and or. You have to have one or the other. Without love for your brother, your love for God is worthless. Your religion is 
is worthless. It is no small thing that James mentions that those who we curse with our tongues are made in the image of God. You see, to curse the image of God is tantamount to cursing God himself. One who curses the craftsmanship curses the craftsman. One who curses the works of God's hand curses the hands of God. Your sweetest words of praise to God mean nothing if mixed with the bitterness of envy and deceit and gossip and slander and hate and ill will and evil speech against your brother and sister and Christ most especially, but also any man, any woman made in the image of God. Your praise is not sweet while your curses are bitter. They are all distasteful, fit only to be spit out by God. And that is why not many of you should become teachers, because you know that we'll be judged more strictly, for we all stumble in many ways. There is none righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, and the venom of snakes is under their lips. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Four realities that James gives us. The tongue is powerful and destructive and untamable and unstable. That is the circular problem of what James is saying in this passage. You want to be a teacher, then you must be able to control the uncontrollable creature that is on your tongue, that is in, that is your tongue, which seems like a futile endeavor, doesn't it? The very thing I need to do, I am unable to do. Yes, that's correct. That is the truth. That will set you free. That is what James is doing here. Surgically removing any hope of the believer's ability to control the tongue by themselves. He leaves them desperately without a remedy. At least in chapter 3. And it would be foolish and disastrous for me to leave you there as well. James concludes these thoughts further down the road. So let's look at that briefly. James talks on the tongue here in this first half of chapter 3. And then he transitions to talking about wisdom in the second half. Now, providentially, Pastor Rob is going to be preaching on that text next Sunday, Lord willing. The tongue and wisdom. You want to be a teacher? Check yourself on these two before you wreck yourself and others. And then chapter 4, James addresses the sin problem of those clamoring for position, jealousy, envy, quarreling, passion, And this is where he brings the remedy. James chapter 4, verse 6. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It is totally right to mourn and weep at the truth that the tongue is untamable. 
You see, when we think that we have attained enough knowledge and enough understanding and we're ready to instruct others in whatever the situation, it is time for humility. It is time to hear and accept the unvarnished truth like a punch in the face. In your own strength, you are helpless to control your own tongue. You do not have hold of the reins. You are not the captain of your own ship. If left off the leash, the very flames of hell, the work of the devil, they are in charge of you. You are its slave. How desperate a situation. I am helpless. Is there anyone who could control my tongue? There is. Romans chapter 7, Paul tells us. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, here it is, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Elsewhere, he says almost the exact same thing, but he says we have victory through Jesus. He is the great tongue tamer. He alone can change the heart. He alone brings life from death. He alone is able to destroy the works of the devil. He alone able to subdue that serpent who seeks to devour with his mouth the saints. Jesus, in fact, I love this, with his mouth will destroy all the devil's works in an instant, forever. Satan, that liar, that accuser, the restless evil one with all of his weapons and his followers will be thrown for eternity into the fire he loved to use so much. James says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Look to Christ, brothers and sisters. Give him your tongue. Give him the reins. Give him the helm. His perfect tongue he gives to you in exchange for the evil creature that you want to keep. I mean, is this not part of the hope that we have? That even this little powerful thing has been conquered by Christ. I leave you with the words of Peter to this effect. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We receive that healing when we place our trust in the only one who can heal. So if you do not know Jesus Christ, like this passage said, you can know him, that he suffered for you, that he was reviled for you, that he bore your sin against God and every sin of your tongue in his body on the cross so that you might live and speak 
no longer to evil, but to righteousness. So trust in Jesus. And he will empower your tongue to confess your need for him, to ask for his forgiveness for all your sin. And the Father will delight to hear those words from your mouth, and he will save you. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news we've been entrusted with. May the Holy Spirit so use your tongue that this good news might extinguish fire and bring healing in its place. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your love to fill us, that this love would allow no room for corrupting talk to come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits each occasion, so that our words may give grace to those who hear. Holy Spirit, you have sealed us for the day of redemption. What a hope. We ask for your strength to put away from us all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Jesus, our great teacher, teach us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as you have forgiven us. May all that we say and do bring you glory. Amen.